Father, we do just thank you so much for who you are. We're thankful, God, that you are the good God, the gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger, bounding in mercy, steadfast love. That's good news, and we thank, and we're so thankful for it. We just ask that you would open our hearts to see what you have to say to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would come and would do the speaking today, and that you would come in, in power, and that you would change us, body, soul, and spirit. God, that you would help us to remember just the great mission that we are, we are on, um, that the world may know you, and that you will restore absolutely everything to its original intent and even greater than that. And so we just, we just come saying thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Come now, in Jesus' name, amen. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Still in Matthew? We'll be here a while. We're going to be in a, just a few verses today. The very end of chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word. So the saying goes, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think we've all heard that. We've also all seen it. Authority and related to it power are complicated and controversial realities. Political power is on our minds lately as we deal with the questions and the fallout surrounding today's presidential candidates and their use of the authority they've been given with their mouths, with their emails, with their corporations, with their nonprofit organizations. And this is not unusual. I was watching earlier this week a documentary on President Nixon's secretly recorded audio tapes. And some of you know firsthand how big of a watershed moment it was when the Watergate scandal demonstrated how Nixon and others misused the highest political power in the land. So all of us have seen how political authority can be used unjustly. We have the current debate about police power, the use of force and its relationship to race, especially black Americans in our culture. Today is September 11th, and we remember how radical Islamic terrorists killed so many in our nation 15 years ago, and how the use of religious power can be some of the most destructive of all. Over the past decades, we've seen priests in the Roman Catholic Church sexually abuse children, and then the ecclesial hierarchy attempt to cover it up. Lest we just look outside, we've seen Protestant churches, church leaders abuse power for material gain, for sexual release, for ego trips, money, 
a new book deal. On a smaller scale, in our homes, we have all experienced problems with power and authority as children and as parents. You may have been victimized by the sin of someone else through abandoned authority by an absent dad or abusive authority by a harmful parent. Or maybe you're the offender. Maybe you've done some of those very things or have misused your authority in a more subtle way. Avoided discipline. Evaded having to make hard family decisions. The point is, power and authority can be misused all too easily. This is obvious. Because of these experiences, some of us may have a mostly negative view of power and authority. Some of us don't want anything to do with either of them. So we abdicate responsibility. We don't get committed. We treat power and authority with total skepticism or even sometimes as an evil itself, as if the nature of power and authority itself is evil and harmful. In a fallen world of brokenness and sin, the misuses of authority and power are countless, and its destructive effects span the generations. That's basically the story of a lot of world history. Bring consequences that we can't escape. And so we see it in small institutions like the family. We see it in big institutions like the state like the church, religion. And so none of us are exempt from power and the sinful use of it. Most disturbing of all, when we really look closely, we find it in our own hearts and how we misuse the power, the influence that God has given each one of us for the wrong ends. But there's one exception to this kind of power. His name is Jesus. Though Jesus experienced the harmful effects of power by being crucified as an innocent man by wicked Roman political rulers and by religious leaders, Jesus came operating with a different kind of power, a different kind of authority. He used His authority with compassion and mercy. He used it for redemption, for restoration. That's what Jesus did. That's what we've been seeing recently in these last several weeks. And so today ends our little mini-series that we've been doing on the authority of Jesus and concludes chapter 9 of our journey as we truck through this gospel, trying to break it up in little series to make it a little bit easier to handle the many weeks here. And what we've been finding is that Jesus has an authority that is larger in scope, that his authority is bigger than any other authority that this world has ever seen, and that he exercises it differently than the way that the world exercises it. So his authority, while it's more expansive than the powers of the religious and political leaders of the day, is simultaneously more merciful than the rulers of the day. In other words, Jesus' authority is bigger and better than the authorities, than any existing human authorities that we have ever seen. The absolute power of Jesus doesn't have any trace of corrupting influence, but it's motivated by compassion and by restoration. So these verses function, 35 to 39, function as Matthew's summary of what Jesus has done up to this point in the Gospel. 
and as a transition point from the mission of Jesus to the mission of Jesus' followers. So, this paragraph looks back and it looks forward. It functions as a rearview mirror and a windshield. So that's what we're looking at today. And there are three C's that I want us to see. Three C's. The complete authority of Jesus in verse 35. The compassionate authority of Jesus in verse 36. And the commissioning authority of Jesus in verses 37 to 38. So first off, let's look at the complete authority of Jesus in verse 35. Read it again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So where's the authority in this text? It's right there in that phrase, the kingdom of God. A kingdom is a sphere, it's a state, it's a place that a king rules. That's what a kingdom is. So the message Jesus is bringing is about God's authoritative rule to the world. When Jesus began His ministry, the kingdom of God moved from being this distant promised hope that Israel was longing for to being the present arrival of God's kingdom to earth. The kingdom came in a surprising way, in a shocking way, than the people of Israel were expecting. They were expecting a promised king to end their exile to banish all of her enemies, to establish some kind of a religious state rule which would gather all the people of Israel together. And instead, Jesus comes announcing that God's reign had started, that God's reign was here, but God wasn't gathering people to overthrow the Roman government. He wasn't going alongside and uniting with the existing Jewish religious leaders He was gathering a new kind of community. He was forgiving sins. He was defeating demons. He was healing the sick. He was embracing the outcast. And he was teaching startling new things that they weren't expecting from their Bible, the Old Testament. So the place of the kingdom wasn't going to have borders. But it had arrived in the ministry and in the person of Jesus of Nazareth himself. So in our passage, it tells us that that's what Jesus is doing. He's going from village to village. He's going from city to city in the synagogues and in the public squares, teaching and proclaiming. We see those words that God's reign had begun, that something new had come. A different ruling authority was going to confront existing authorities. And we know that whenever a new kingdom comes, old kingdoms don't like it. Another obvious thing from history God's rule was going to disrupt religious, political, racial, and spiritual structures. And since God created absolutely everything and He made everything good, He's concerned about everything. And He's coming back to restore and completely affect everything to rewire, in a sense, the fallen world. How? How does Jesus do this? Jesus does this by... Proclaiming and teaching. Teaching and proclaiming. While teaching can be more um, lecturish, more informational, proclaiming 
is more like the person on the street that you see heralding news. Usually what we think of as the crazy person yelling some kind of announcement as loud as he or she can. Jesus is both instructing his listeners and he's appealing to them to embrace what God is doing in the world. So he's a teacher and he's a preacher. He is one who explains and one who exhorts. But again, we see that we don't just have explaining and announcing. That's not all that Jesus is doing. He's not just doing what's happening up here right now. And he's doing it far better. But Jesus did not just come from heaven to say something to us. He came to do something. So we find that when when God's kingdom comes, that it's an announcement and that Jesus also enacts it. He makes it happen. That the message of the kingdom is proclaimed and the message of the kingdom is demonstrated. So this is the both-and nature of Christianity. The message Jesus brings and the deeds he does is for the whole person, for every part of us. It's a holistic message. That's a buzzword right now. Holistic, holism, whole foods, you name it. It's a popular word. But basically what that is, is that you're not just concerned with parts, but you're concerned with the whole. And that's what Jesus is concerned with. We see that he's concerned about body and soul. He's concerned about our hearts and our heads. He's concerned about spiritual diseases like sin. He's concerned with physical diseases like cancer. So he's after healing the whole person. The word for healing here, and I'm not going to say it right, but it's something like therapeion or therapeuon, which sounds a lot like therapy. So Jesus is after complete therapy for the world and for human beings. It's complete mental health, physical health, relational health, soul health. It addresses issues of shame. It addresses issues of guilt, demonic oppression, disease, neurochemical imbalances, whatever it might be, Jesus is after that. So his kingdom is about restoring the inner, inside, and the outer fragmentation that all of us experience due to living in a fallen world. That's what he's after. He's after the whole thing. Unfortunately, various Christian denominations tend to emphasize different aspects of his ministry. Word ministry versus deed ministry, so to speak, or the wonders of understanding the word in our heads versus the experience of signs and wonders in our midst. But Jesus doesn't do this. He blends them both together. He doesn't reduce his ministry to one or the other. It comes in word and it comes in power. He comes to affect the spiritual and the tangible, and that's what Jesus does. So the kingdom of God is comprehensive. We may want to divvy it up and divide it up according to our comfort levels and backgrounds, but it will not be divided up. God's kingdom will not be divided up. So we don't just want to be Sermon on the Mount Christians, Matthews 5 through 7. We also want to be Matthew 8 to 9 Christians, following Jesus' demonstration with power. The Apostle Paul, he didn't want to settle for this kind of ministry either. He described his ministry like this when he said this to the Corinthians. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May that be the case here. The message of the kingdom of God announces the renewal of all things and affects the renewal of all things. So, we should be a church that's about the renewal of everything, all things, under King Jesus. And we see this universal emphasis here in the passage too. Look, 
all. He's through all of the cities, all of the villages. Look at the healing he does. Every disease, every affliction. So again, lock in on those words. All, every, complete authority. So the kingdom of God is meant to spread everywhere. It's meant to go over all the earth, to infiltrate every nook and every cranny of our heads, our hearts, and our bodies. And someday, the kingdom is going to come in fullness. And at the second coming, there's going to be no sick bodies. There's going to be no bad theology. There's no racial tension. There's no evil rulers. There's no demonic activity. The fullness of his presence is going to restore everything in the earth. Restore the whole person. Everything that we long to be restored will be restored in Jesus in his second coming. So the authority of Jesus is invested with complete authority. The first C. The second C. This is verse 36. We find that the authority of Jesus is one of compassion. The authority of Jesus is one of compassion. Look at that wonderful phrase, when he saw the crowds. When he saw the crowds. I was thinking to hang there just for a minute. Jesus saw them. We don't always see the crowds. We're too busy with our schedules and our smartphones to even notice them. Do you take time to see the crowds? Do you take time to look around? Jesus does. This may be one reason why Pastor John Ortberg was told by Dallas Willard, who's a popular spiritual formation author who passed away a little bit ago. He told him to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from his life. Ortberg writes this, Entering into a very busy season of ministry, I called Dallas to ask him what I needed to do to stay spiritually healthy. I pictured him sitting in that room as we talked. There was a long pause. With Dallas, there was nearly always a long pause. And then he said slowly, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You and I will never be spiritually healthy or have compassion for anyone if all we see is ourselves. If all we see is our schedules, our projects, our work, our smartphones, our ministries. Jesus was never too busy to see, to notice people, to look at what their faces say. And there's so many people that I miss. I'm so busy even when I'm not busy. You know what I mean? Are you ever occupied with something in your head even if you aren't doing anything? You're busy or you're occupied on your device. You're busy. This verse calls us to slow down like Jesus and to see. See people as they are and where they are. They're not projects. They aren't means to an end. They're human beings created in the image of God. I think there's something else here too. Jesus sees you. Jesus has not forgotten you. He sees your needs. He cares for you individually. It may seem like no one else does, but Jesus does. He cares for you. He loves you. If you feel like you're one at the margins, that you're invisible, that you're broken, that you're needy, that you're too messed up even to admit it to anyone, that you're completely lost, this section of verses tells us that you are exactly who Jesus sees and exactly who Jesus is in the business of chasing down and finding. It's when Jesus saw the helpless people that he felt compassion. We see that in what it says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without 
a shepherd. So when you think of Jesus' ministry, what do you think of? If you were given one word to describe the kind of person Jesus is, what would it be? Compassion should be right at the very top of the list. The emotion Jesus experienced the most, or at least the one we have recorded the most, was compassion. The old Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said this, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as going through the land doing good. Acts 11.38 is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. End quote. The word for compassion here comes from this wild word that I'm completely going to butcher. <laughs> um, something like splanknozomai. Splanknozomai. And the word is not merely feeling sorry for somebody. It describes an emotion that comes from the very depths of the soul. The word itself has a physical component. The first part of the word was used in the book of Acts in chapter 118 to describe Judas who was the betrayer of Jesus, to describe his intestinal bowels bursting open on a field. One lexicon describes it as having one's heart go out to someone. But that almost sounds cliche. At least it does to me. When Jesus is described in the Gospels as feeling this emotion toward a person in need, he has more than just his heart go out to them. He does something about their need. He, it's, it's feeling that leads to an action. It's not just a sentiment. Jesus' compassion is, as one author put it, and kind of like what the word sounds like, splanknozomai, it's, it's gut-wrenching compassion. He operates with a gut-wrenching, misery-meeting compassion. Jesus is more than a compassionate conservative, more than a bleeding-heart liberal. He is God in the flesh who took on human flesh to save humanity. He's the good shepherd chasing down wandering sheep. So again, to mention a former president, Bill Clinton, he said, I feel your pain in a kind of famous phrase. Jesus not only feels our pain, he, from a distance, he actually enters into it. He took upon him the curse by becoming a curse for us to bring comfort and to bring total salvation. That's what Jesus did. That's what his compassion does, feels and does. So chapters 8 and 9 have been showing us that Jesus bends toward human need, that he comes to comfort the miserable ones. Divine mercy draws close to human misery. So instead of moving away, this is what I do, instead of a natural reaction to want to move away, to want to go to the other side of the block, move away from human misery, move away from the messy places, Jesus goes right into it. He goes right into it and brings his mercy. He brings the leprous religious outcast into the temple. He says that a Roman centurion showed greater faith than anyone in Israel. He overthrew demons and brought peace to those possessed by them. He does what only God can do by stopping storms and forgiving sins. He even snatches back the dead and makes them alive. That's what we've been seeing. We could go on and on and mention each story. But Jesus moves toward helplessness, powerlessness, weakness, 
And sometimes in a church like ours, sometimes I can emphasize the truth a lot. We can do a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching, just like Jesus did. You say, you know, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. It's truth. And that's true. But we must never forget that Jesus was compassionate. His primary goal was not just to be right. His primary goal was not just to be right. His aim was to save sinners, to go after those who were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Again, see how he doesn't move away from them. He moves toward them. What's your posture toward people? Are you mainly trying to make everyone as holy as you are? You see Jesus is mainly here to try to fix us, straighten us out, get us on the quote-unquote narrow path. This section of verses reminds us that Jesus did not only see people as sinners, which he did, but as helplessly weak human beings in need of complete restoration. Not just the category of sinner, as human beings in need of restoration. He desires to make sinners sons of God and to make human beings whole. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. Unlike the shepherds of the day, the religious leaders who were so into who were so into being right that they were wrong. They had to make more rules about being right just to make sure they were right and that everyone else was right too. And in doing so, they missed the point. They missed mercy. They missed the very character of God, the God of Israel, who defined himself in the book of Exodus as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Propaganda a spoken word rapper, said being right is a distant second to the joy of compassion. Being right is a distant second to the joy of compassion. The enjoyment of being right wasn't just Jesus' heartbeat. It was mercy. It was going after people. So we need to make sure that we don't just desire to teach what Jesus taught and to believe what Jesus said, but to live the kind of life Jesus lived. Doing what Jesus did and feeling what he feels is not what saves us but it is what he saves us for. So, more questions come to my mind. What are you known for? What is the emotion that most characterizes your life? What about our church? The city of Fortuna was giving one word to say about Rudder Christian Fellowship. What would it be? If your family and those closest to you wrote down one word about you, what would it be? Pause for a moment. I think the word for me this week, while I'm studying for a sermon on compassion, would be short, quick, stressed, checked out. Pretty much everything Jesus is not in this passage. So, these verses slap me in the face, but they also remind me of the good news, that that's who Jesus came for. He came for people like me. Though we are called to walk as Jesus walked, the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus reaches out and he grabs people like me, like you. Maybe stressed, maybe checked out, maybe angry, maybe with problems, with needs, And he came for people like that, to shepherd them, to carry them. Back to the text. Notice the imagery here of shepherd and sheep. 
Jesus is being pictured here as the shepherd king. He is a shepherd who is a king and a king who is a shepherd. Sound familiar? Jesus is King David's son. David, shepherd, David, king. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Jesus brings his kingly reign as a compassionate shepherd who gathers and helps helpless sheep. And the state of the sheep, the state of the sheep, of the crowds, is not well in this text, is not well in the land of Israel. They're harassed, helpless. Other translations say things like distressed and downcast, weary and worn out. I like the picture the Living Bible paraphrase says, Their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. Ever feel that way? Well, how does Jesus respond to those kinds of people? His compassion kicks in. The message, another paraphrase, says, when he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. That's Jesus' response to those kinds of people. Jesus' heart breaks for weary, worn out, discouraged, depressed people with big problems that they cannot fix themselves. That's who Jesus came for. The only kind of people that are eliminated from this kind of merciful compassion are those that don't think they need it. Jesus, the good shepherd, goes after his lost sheep. And remember that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. And that doesn't always strike me. That doesn't always strike probably us the way that it should. It just feels like a statement. Another doctrine. Yep, believe Jesus is God. Words on a page. Statement of faith. Good to go. And it doesn't actually hit us right between the eyes where it should. Until we really, really see that this, what we're looking at right now, this is what God is like. This is who God is like. What is being hinted at in these verses is that the God of Israel that we read about earlier in Ezekiel 34, who was going to come and rescue his distressed sheep, is Jesus. This verse at the end of Matthew 9 is God himself fulfilling what was prophesied in Ezekiel 34. This is verses 15 to 16 of what Bob read earlier. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. We can't be afraid of Jesusing God too much. We can't be afraid of Jesusing God too much. One theologian put it this way. There is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus. No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God we see and meet in Him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God. The very love and life God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. End quote. The authority of Jesus, the authority of God is compassionate. The kind of power Jesus leads with is soaked in mercy. Unless we think that makes Jesus weak, it doesn't. Remember again the prophecy in Ezekiel 34 said that God was against against the shepherds of Israel 
who scattered and abused the sheep. There's nothing more fearful than to know that God is against you. And he is against wicked, religious, Christian power abusers. We see this too in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus doesn't mess around with the Pharisees. He's in their face all the time. He's not nice to them. He calls them names, which we will have a lot of fun seeing in Matthew 23. So we also see in this passage that Jesus came to rescue people not only from their sins and their sufferings, but from abusive religious authority. Some of the same language here in Matthew 9 of scattered sheep is meant to remind us of Ezekiel 34 and that God will come to gather back his lost sheep of Israel from the results of oppressive, self-seeking, abandoning leadership. The leaders of Israel utterly failed. They taught more tradition than the Hebrew Bible, and they were motivated more by external religion than internal change. They loved sacrifice and religious ritual more than mercy and divine compassion. Jesus wants to rescue people from leaders that care more about themselves than others, pastors that care more about ministry than the people in the ministry, elders that are more concerned with their own authority than pointing people to the authority of Jesus. So, BJ... What kind of leader are you? What kind of leader are you? What kind of leader have you had? Jesus will not put up with those who treat people as prey. Instead, Jesus commissions his disciples to pray for laborers that will not abandon the sheep, but will go out and get them. Will go out and get them, gather them, bring them in. This is the third C the commissioning authority of Jesus in verses 37 to 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In the next chapter, we're going to see explicitly the commission of Jesus to his disciples, that he entrusts them with authority for mission. And this is astounding when you think about it. The Son of God gives authority to his followers. It was also unusual in that culture because followers of rabbis may memorize what their teachers taught, but they wouldn't necessarily be a part of the ministry themselves or be entrusted with authority. Yet Jesus wants his disciples to do something more than learn spiritual facts. He wants them to carry out and do his compassionate mission in the earth. So if following Jesus for you is only believing Christian ideas, then it's not the kind of following Jesus that he calls us to. He's calling us to compassionate mission. According to these verses, how do we see the authority of Jesus and his kingdom extend to every place? How do we see the authority of Jesus and his kingdom extend to every place? We pray before we act. We pray before we do anything. We know this is true because Jesus earlier in Matthew 6 told us to pray. And what did he tell us to pray? He said, pray that the Father's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as long as earth doesn't look like heaven, we should keep praying that prayer. We should ask that God's rule, that his compassionate reign would come, that it would come in our church, that it would come in our family, in our bodies, in social structures around us. But, like many other things in the Bible, there's a tension here. 
So when we ask that God's kingdom come, doesn't, isn't saying that Jesus isn't currently reigning. He is reigning. Jesus has total sovereign authority over all the kings of the earth and over all of history. He's not concerned that his mission will fail. He's not concerned about that. That doesn't worry him at all for one second. He invites his disciples and he invites us to get on with the mission, to pray for the extension of the mission. And so these last couple of verses, 37 and 38, are a classic example of the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, yet he calls us to pray that laborers would go get the harvest that is already there. The harvest is already there. It's big. Isn't that interesting? So picture it. It's as There's this giant field. There's a bunch of hay in the field. Somebody's got to go bale the hay. The apples are ripe, if you want to use that. They're ready. Clendenins is ready. Got to go put them in buckets. Get ready for apple harvest. We need a healthy dose of optimism, I think, right now in our country. And Jesus is very optimistic. There is no stopping the harvest and the advancement of God's kingdom. It cannot and it will not ever be stopped. Even if he gets finished with our country. His kingdom will not be stopped. We have reason for the best optimism. We know that the harvest in the world will expand and that the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth. Jesus said the gospel will go to every nation and then the end will come. There's no stopping it. It cannot be stopped. But we don't do the harvesting. God does the harvesting. He's the one that ripens the fruit. He works in the heart. He is the Lord of the harvest, as it says in verse 38. He's in charge of the size and the amount of produce in the harvest. We're responsible for the reaping. And sure, we must labor to do it. It takes hard work, but the hardest work is done. Wasn't that Paul's attitude in 2 Timothy 2.10? Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He will suffer anything. Because he knows God has chosen people to be saved. He knows it for sure. So the reality of election that God chooses people for salvation doesn't put a damper on his endurance, seeing that people get saved. It fuels it. Election fuels mission. Harvest fuels the laborers. The fact that the harvest is already there inspires us to work. The hard work is done. So mission, our theme for the next series, begins with the recognition that the mission will be successful. The divine plan is secured. What about our role? Where does our role in this begin? Our role is in recognizing that the mission will be successful. First part. It's plentiful. See it. Believe it. And pray. Pray that God will send out laborers. Interesting that the first thing Jesus tells us to do is not go, but pray. Pray for laborers. Pray for workers that go out into the fields with the message of the kingdom. And then he says, don't just pray a little bit about it. He says, earnestly pray. Intensely. The idea here is beg. Beg God to do what he already promised to do. So that doesn't make sense. That doesn't, how does that work? Well, that's what it says. He promised to do it. Beg him to do it. Beg him to send workers and do the harvest that he has already secured. I was thinking sometimes we get caught up in our own little crops, in our own little 
stuff in life that we forget, that I forget, that there is a harvest of people that need Jesus and that Jesus already has. We're so tuned into working on the harvest of our backyard, working on the yield of our retirement portfolios, the reward of our families, whatever it might be, that we forget. We forget that God has a harvest of men and of women that he loves, that he's chosen, that need to be reaped. We forget the mission for other tasks. So enjoy what you have, but don't neglect the mission. Remember, the harvest is plentiful. Our first impulse in mission, again, when we think about mission, isn't to pray. It's to go do the mission. But he says pray. It's not go do something. It's not go witness, evangelize, knock on doors, hand out tracts, start an event, do something big for Jesus. It's pray. The first thing, prayer seems impractical. It does to me. It's not just praying. Just praying. Shouldn't we do something? Shouldn't we be productive? But prayer is doing something. It's us asking God to do something that he loves to do. There's no ministry productivity without ministry prayerfulness. The idea here is that we pray that God will send out laborers. And the word send out is actually a little bit weak. The idea here is more like drive out, throw out, expel. It's used coming up in just a verse in 10.1 that describes casting out demons. I was thinking, wouldn't it be funny if there was a mission conference, conference that said something like, exercise people out of their pews for mission. And if, that was, and if that was the theme. Jesus may be saying that getting a Christian like me to go is just as difficult as getting a demon out of somebody. We talk a lot about the Great Commission, maybe not as much as we should, but what about this first commission, this first commission of Jesus? And maybe the reason why we don't obey the Great Commission is that we don't obey the first one. Here Jesus is reminding us or it's even greater than us, he's commissioning us. He's telling us to go do it, to, to pray that workers would go into mission. And so God's will for you may not be to cross a culture, but his will for you will always be to pray. Prayer demonstrates that we are completely dependent on God's authority in his complete and compassionate mission in the earth. And it is something even more. Our prayers, our prayers themselves, carry an authority before God to eject people out of complacency and to send them into his mission. So your prayer, your prayer, all you intercessors out there, has weighty power before the all-powerful God. And it has power. It's not fake power. It's not he's just all-powerful. No, your prayer itself has power. Jonathan Edwards whom God used in a great revival in America in the 1700s. And he had about as high of a view of the sovereignty of God as one has probably ever articulated. This is what he said about prayer. There is no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. There's no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. Do you think of prayer that way? Do you think of when you're praying for people, when you're praying for your neighbor, your family, the lost in other countries, do you think of it that way? 
He goes on, and this one is pretty mind-blowing. He says, God is, God is, if I may say, if I may so say, at the command of the prayer of faith, and in this respect is, as it were, under the power of his people. As princes, they have power with God and prevail. End quote. Your prayer is powerful. For all of you, that prayer, I was thinking about Kay, thinking about Arlene, thinking about so many, so many others here that pray. Your prayer is powerful. Be encouraged. Some of you may think, I don't, I don't have much of a ministry, and some of you pray a lot. Prayer is a big deal. God moves through the earth because of your prayers. How can it be that our prayers would contain such explosive power? How can lost, broken, sinful people come before God and have God do what they say? It comes from another C, the cross. It comes from the cross. Anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus is commissioned and empowered to pray because Jesus' blood secures the privilege to come before his Father and to confidently ask him anything in prayer. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how you feel today. It doesn't matter what you've done. The ground of your acceptance before the only God of the universe is the work of God's only Son. The power of your prayers is empowered by the blood and broken flesh of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19-22 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You and I will never be able to draw near to God with a clean conscience on our own. Because we don't have enough power to clean our consciences. And some of your consciences drive you almost crazy. The only thing that will cleanse a conscience is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're waiting to be confident before God, if you're waiting to be confident in your prayer until or, or before, before Him, and you're waiting to go, well, once my life gets right, once I get my problems figured out, once my marriage gets better, once my kids get saved, once I kick the porn habit, the drug habit, once my issues are gone, whatever it might be, once those happen, then I'll be confident. No, the confidence comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. It comes from trusting His blood, something you can't do. That's the only place the confidence comes from. That's how He opened it. That's how He opened the access your way of access to the Father is the complete and compassionate work of Jesus for you. There is no other way. There was no other way. And that is how King Jesus ultimately demonstrated his authority and his power in the world. He did it by dying. This is not something kings use to show off their authority. They kill. They kill to fulfill the mission. They don't die to fulfill the mission. But that's what Jesus does. He's a new kind of king with a new kind of kingdom. He demonstrates his saving power by sacrificially dying in the place of sinners. Ironically, that's what Matthew tells us was written over his cross. Quote, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him on the right and on the left. So that was placed there to mock him, but it was true. Jesus is the king of the Jews and the king of kings. Jesus showed his power by living among sinful people and then suffering among the worst of sinners and as the worst of sinners on a cross. And so his power is a gift of grace. The shepherd king lays down his life to compassionately reach broken, helpless, discouraged, abandoned, powerless, pained, abused, suffering, and sinful people. The king of the world dies in the place of the rebel subjects in the world. He's stripped naked before men and women. He's beaten. He's whipped. He's mocked. He's laughed at. His arms and his legs are nailed with a spike into a tree. He even experienced God-forsakenness. And he did all of that to take the shame, to take the sin of anyone of you who would trust it. The message of his kingdom is to repent, to admit God, I'm powerless to save myself. I'm helpless. And then to turn away from looking at myself to turn to Jesus and say, you're king. Say, I find my my ultimate empowerment in you. That's where empowerment comes from. He shows that the most potent power in the world is substitutionary and sacrificial love. The proof that he has it, the proof that that's true, that he completely saves us, is because he didn't stay dead. Because Jesus is alive. Jesus rules and reigns. God raised him from the dead. God gave him all authority in heaven and in earth. He's alive. And he tells us to remember all that he accomplished for us by doing a very simple thing. Drinking and eating. Normal, everyday, ordinary thing. Jesus makes extraordinary. A small part of our Sunday gathering, but the part that reminds us of the complete salvation that he won for us, blood shed to save us from our sins, to save us from our spiritual separation from God, to bring us back into relationship with him as a father to a son, a body broken to guarantee the resurrection of your body in a new heaven and a new earth, in utter wholeness in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he invites us to. He says, take, eat, pray, and go. So worship team, let's do it.
1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.